Well, it's always good to be together on the Lord's Day uh, to worship Him. It's good to see your faces and to hear you sing to Him. I'm delighted to open God's Word again to the letter to the Hebrews. Turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 7, as this morning we come to the end of this argument in, in chapter 7 that really began all the way back in chapter 4, a wonderful exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4 made by the author here. And as you turn there, I just want to remind us that in the first two chapters of Genesis, as you'll remember, we have the creation account. And if you're familiar with that account, it is marked by this repeated phrase, and it was good. And it was good. Then in verse 31 of chapter 1, and behold, it was very good. This repetitious phrase of the goodness, the perfection of creation. That God had made it exactly as it was meant to be. Mankind originally made perfectly in the image of God and without sin. And so it's meant to catch our attention then when we come to chapter 2 and for the first time read, something is not good. That's to strike us as odd. It's out of step with what we have read so far. And of course, that thing that was not good, God says, is that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so God promises to make a helper for him that's suitable to him. But if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 2, then you know that right after God declares that it's not good and that he's going to solve Adam's problem by creating a helper for him, he does something that seems to be odd. Because the next thing that God does is he brings all of the animals in front of Adam and has Adam name all of the animals. I mean, when you read through that, it seems initially to be out of step. It's, it, we, we would expect the creation of Eve to immediately follow after that declaration that things were not good. And yet, when we think about it in context, it becomes clear that what God was doing was showing Adam the reality of what he had just said. When God said it was not good for man to be alone, Adam, in his perfection, may not have even realized that. I think when he's in the garden, initially, he's thinking, this is amazing. And when God says it's not good for you to be alone, I think that may have initially been surprising to him. But after naming all of the animals, it becomes clear to Adam that there really is none in creation like him. He's the only image bearer. And none of these other created beings will do when it comes to a helpmate for Adam. And so what God does for Adam is he reveals his need and then provides what is needed. I think the author of Hebrews has done a very similar thing for us when it comes to the superiority of Christ's priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews has highlighted for us our need for a superior high priest. And he's highlighted the fact that under the Mosaic law, there was a priesthood, but it was inadequate. It didn't accomplish what man needed. There was no way that through that priesthood, we could be made truly right with God in an eternal sense and be brought near to him. And so just as he did for Adam, God has done for us through the author of Hebrews and shown us our need for a better, greater high priest. And the good news, of course, is we have one. We have the better, superior high priest. And we're going to look at him in that role one more time this morning as we come to the end of chapter 7. You remember the theme overarching of the book, the superiority of Christ, and 
This has been a a wonderful but lengthy section now. We began back in chapter 4, verse 14. We are now coming to the end of this at chapter 7, verse 28, and we've seen this further explanation of Christ's priesthood here. You remember we made observations about this mysterious man, Melchizedek, early in the chapter. We saw his historical significance and spiritual significance. We observed the greatness of Melchizedek, and of course we did that really to observe the greatness of Christ through Melchizedek. We saw the need for a, a new priesthood because of, uh, of Christ's priesthood. The law was inadequate, and we saw that. We saw that his priesthood necessitates the law's removal, and it provides sinner, the sinner perfection. But then last week, we came to the end of uh, chapter 7, just before our, our final verses here, in verses 20 to 25. I want to read those again just for the sake of context. So Hebrews 7, verse 20, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. For them. If you remember, this continued us in the overarching theme the eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. And we're introduced to, to three traits that describe the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Last week we saw trait number one and two Christ's priesthood is established by divine oath. And then, secondly, trait number two Christ's priesthood accomplished an eternal salvation. But now, as we come to the end of the chapter, verses 26 to 28, we have this third trait that shows, again, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Let's read verses 26 to 28, which we'll study this morning. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. This third trait that we'll study this morning that makes Christ superior is that his priesthood is characterized by perfection. It's characterized by Christ's perfection. He begins here in verse 26 by saying, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. That phrase, it was fitting, is important for us to understand. This is mentioned, the same word, the same verb is mentioned in other places that adds to our understanding here. For example, in Titus 2 verse 1, we read, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 
That is, they, they go with, they're, they're right, they correspond to sound doctrine. Ephesians 5.3 uses the verb this way, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper, that's the word, as is proper among saints. So here, when he says, for it was fitting, what he's saying is it was, it was proper, it was right, it was suitable, it, it's compatible in the same way that, that God made Eve to be compatible and suitable for Adam, we needed a, a high priest that was right, that was suitable for the task. And what he says here is it was right. It was, it was the perfect choice in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stood in need of a very particular kind of high priest because of our sin. Not just anyone could truly represent us. And so it was fitting that we had this kind of high priest. He is suitable and qualified. Obviously, we're still comparing. We will, throughout these verses, the the Levitical priest and the priesthood of Christ. And here again, we see the inadequacy of that previous priesthood. Notice the word such here. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. That is... There are attributes about Jesus Christ that make it undeniably clear that he and he alone can be the great high priest. He and he alone is the right fit, the one who is suitable for us. And so what the author does now is give us a detailed list. Some of these are are repetitive of things that he's already highlighted. Some are things that introduce things that will be highlighted in the chapters to come. But he brings all of this together as a great crescendo here at the end of the chapter, and really at the end of this long argument about the priesthood of Christ. And he breaks this list of things that make Christ the fitting high priest into three categories that we'll look at today. Category number one, we'll call his superior character. His superior character. Christ is the fitting high priest because his character is exalted. And he explains the character of Christ here with three descriptive terms. But before we look at those and consider them, I just want to make sure that we step back and let the the effect of this passage have its way. This is intended to be the crescendo. Just as a a crescendo in a song is to draw your attention as the the melody and, and everything heightens and intensifies, that's the idea here. And we want to avoid coming at this as if this is just an academic exercise or we're gonna define some words and talk about them and go home and have lunch. No, we're, we're gonna talk about some terms and we're gonna look at this as it deserves, but this is a glorious passage. And what we have in front of us this morning is a privilege to look at the Lord Jesus Christ as his people, to see him in all his glory. This is the best use of our time this morning to exalt the name of Christ. And so as we look at these descriptions, let this have the the, the crescendo effect that it's supposed to have. As we talk about his character then, he describes it with three terms. He is holy, innocent, undefiled. Holy, innocent, undefiled. Now understand in this situation in this context when we're talking about him being holy innocent undefiled we're talking about the God man obviously in his divine nature Jesus Christ has always been nothing but holy innocent undefiled 
But he chose in his graciousness, in his kindness to us, to add to his divine nature a full human nature. So that in Christ we have this this wonderful, glorious person who can truly represent us. Because when it says that he is holy, innocent, and undefiled, it means in the totality of who he is. Obviously in his divinity, but in his humanity, he is equally holy, innocent, and undefiled. Understand that any, any words or verbs that describe Jesus as becoming holy or being made holy, as we'll see even used here in this passage, those do not imply that there was ever a time in which Christ was anything but holy. What it's talking about is this, the fact that Jesus actually became a man in time and lived on this planet, a real human life, in and amongst sinners, experiencing temptation, and yet in that real life experience, he never sinned a single time. And so in that sense, he was made holy. That is, he lived it out in real time. He lived a real human life, and never at any point did he fall into sin. Of course, this is crucial for him to have this moral character. It's essential if he is to fulfill the plan of redemption to be our Savior. But what we see here is it was also crucial for him to serve in this role of high priest. He had to be holy, innocent, and undefiled. David Allen notes, the point is that Jesus is free from anything that would in any way defile, prohibit, or disqualify him from priestly service. Jesus possessed perfect holiness. I want you to think about the idea of perfect representation, of how significant it is to have a high priest representing us who can legitimately be called holy, innocent, undefiled. We understand in this country the the idea of representation. It seems that almost constantly we're voting for someone to represent us in some way, either at the local level, the state level, the national level. And the truth is, if you've lived long enough and voted long enough, what you've come to realize is that even when the person that you wanted to win wins, by the end of their term, there are things that are, you're disappointed about because no one, no human being is able to represent us perfectly. You might agree with their policies or, and you're hopeful they'll bring those policies to pass, but then as they serve, some things in their character begin to rise to the surface and you're thinking, oh, I, I like their policies, but I don't like that. I, w- I wish we had a better representative than this one. So obviously in, in the idea of in the area of political representation, it it matters, but in the area of spiritual representation, obviously it matters much, much more. Under the law, the Jews had spiritual representation through the Levitical priesthood, but it was plagued with imperfection. It left them constantly with that sense that it's just not right, it's not enough. They never satisfied the actual need of righteousness that they needed before the Lord. But think about the concept of of genuine, perfect representation. Jesus stands before the Father in absolute, unvarnished perfection, real holiness, truly undefiled and innocent. His is a real perfection 
both by nature in his divinity and earned in his humanity. He comes together as this two-part being, God and man, and yet perfect in every single way. And it's that one that represents you, if you're a Christian. You and I have the gift of perfect representation. And this is good news for us. This should, this should cause our hearts to soar, to be over the moon at the idea that we are the beneficiaries as God's people of this perfect representation, a truly holy, righteous one. What would it be like to stand in the presence of Jesus in his glory, unveiled for us to see? Well, the disciples got to see that and for just a a brief moment, a few of them had that privilege in Matthew 17. You remember the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verses 1 to 6. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. That is, his, his outward appearance dramatically changed and it changed in these ways. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elisha appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elisha. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. I want you to just, if, if you can, in your, in your imagination, put yourself there on that high mountain when Jesus, who you have known at that time as they had as, as, a, as a normal-looking man, is he, he takes back the veil momentarily of his human flesh for you to see the true glory that is his. Overwhelming. Shocking. And that is the state in which he is in. Perfect holiness, unvarnished, with all of his glory on display, that is the, the state that Jesus is in now as he intercedes for you and for me. That should give us great hope. Now we understand why the author says it was fitting, it was right for us to have such a high priest, one like this, perfect in his character. But it's not just his character that's superior, it's his position. The second category here is his superior position. And we see this in the next two phrase, phrases that are mentioned here in verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. And then he adds these two phrases, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Let's look at this first phrase, separated from sinners. I, I believe this most likely refers to the ascension. Here. He's been separated physically. He's gone to be with the Lord. And, and we, we, I think when we combine the two phrases, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, it gives that indication that this is the ascension. The fact that he is now separated from sinners is good news for us in the sense that it provides us with more assurance 
if we needed it, that his work of redemption is truly done. It is finished. You know, the scriptures reveal that Christ came at the appointed time. He came at exactly the divinely appointed time that God had for him and lived a human life. We know that that ministry culminated then in his uh, crucifixion and then his resurrection. And the resurrection was the Father's affirmation, of course, that he had accepted the Son's sacrifice. Jesus himself saying on the cross as he died, it is finished. The resurrection's an affirmation of that statement, it is finished. But the ascension is even another stamp of affirmation that it is finished. Because in that glorified state, having finished that work, he was taken to heaven to remain in that state forever. And so here this idea of him being separated from sinners also makes him fit, makes him suitable for this. He's there now, we can have assurance, with a glory that will never fade. We'll see that when he returns, he's not returning to pick up where he left off in his earthly ministry. No, he's returning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will give out judgment to his enemies and bring real eternal salvation to his people. This is Hebrews 9. We'll see this in a couple of chapters. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once... And after this comes, comes judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This is our Savior ascended to the right hand of the Father who will return in the same way that he went, but he will return to bring real eternal salvation to his people. And where is it exactly that he has gone in this separation? He makes that clear. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. To say that Jesus is exalted above the heavens is a way of saying Jesus is in the highest place. You may be familiar with the fact that when the Bible talks about heaven... It often talks about heaven in, in three ways. There's three heavens, a first heaven, a second heaven, and a third heaven. You may remember Paul said, I, I knew a man, he's speaking of himself, that once went to the third heaven. What is he talking about there? It's the same idea of being exalted above the heavens. We have what we call the sky. That would be the first heaven. And then we have outer space. That would be what the scriptures refer to as the second heaven, and then we have the, what we call heaven, the place of God, where God uh, resides in his glory. That is what the scriptures refer to as the third heaven. So for Jesus to be exalted above the heavens, that is, he's gone through the sky, through outer space, into that realm of God. He's in the highest place. He's there with the Father. He's already made this clear in verse, four, uh, verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is, they saw him pass through the sky, out through outer space, and into the third heaven. But I think Paul captures this, this idea of Jesus being exalted to the highest place in, in a beautiful picture to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 where he says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God highly exalted him, exalted him to the highest place. He's there at the Father's right hand. We've already seen this reality of the ascension of Christ and the exaltation of Christ back in chapter 4, so we won't go thoroughly into that again. But by way of summary, the, the crucial point that's being made here by this description is that Christ is far superior to the Levitical priest because of the place where he carries out his ministry. The place where Jesus ministers is at the Father's right hand. He ministers to God then in heaven face to face. The Levitical priest ministered on earth in a man-made temple, a place that was just a, a shadow of the heavenly one where Christ has entered. If you think about it, what greater confidence can we have that this intercessory ministry will be successful than to know that we're represented by the one who is perfect in his character and perfect in his position in that his ministry is carried out in the very presence of God. This provides assurance for us, Christian, that his intercessory work is absolutely effective every moment of every day because he ministers with the perfect character that he must have, and he's been exalted to a higher position to minister in heaven itself. But there's a third category here of the superiority of Christ that the author mentions. Category number three, his superior sacrifice. His superior sacrifice. Look back at the, the passage again, verse 27, still describing these attributes of Jesus who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Again, there's this contrast, as there's been throughout this, this section, this contrast between the Levitical priesthood and Christ. And this is a topic that we'll dive into more in the chapter's Ahead, but this is a crucial difference between these two priestly orders that we have to understand. As you remember, the Levitical priesthood was built around a daily and annual sacrificial calendar. There were uh, obviously the, the daily morning and evening sacrifices that happened around the clock, and then there was the yearly annual sacrifice, sort of the, the great sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, in which the high priest then would enter into the Holy of Holies as a representative before the people. But this just went on and on and on and on. And what was unique here about Christ versus that high priest is that high priest had to offer sacrifice not only for the people, but for himself. Because he too, at the end of the day, was just a sinner. That's why he says he doesn't need to daily, like those high priests, offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So that high priest, under the old covenant, he was representing the people all right, but he also needed representation himself it fell flat, ultimately, because he was just a sinner trying to represent other sinners. But not so 
when it comes to our Savior. It says, the reason he didn't need to do that daily, offering sin, sacrifice for his own sin, is because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is a profound statement. We can't just let this pass over us. This he did once for all when he offered up himself. Notice there are two points of comparison here. First of all is the number of sacrifices. On the one hand, you have the old covenant, daily sacrifices, annual sacrifices, sacrifices happening all the time without end. Here, one sacrifice. Jesus offered his sacrifice once for all. And he was able to offer that sacrifice once for all because he was the high priest who was fitting, who was suitable. He was the right high priest. But there's a second comparison that relates to the the sacrifice itself. Not only the number of sacrifices, but the, the quality of the sacrifice offered. You remember under the old covenant, what was offered for sacrifice? Animals, a variety of animals. They had to be perfect, quote-unquote, in the sense that physically they had no blemishes and they weren't sick and those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, they were just animals. And really, if you think about it, going back to Genesis again, the fact that in the the same way that those animals were were never going to be compatible for Adam, they're not made in the image of God. In the same way, an animal could never really take our place. An animal could never really provide the, the sacrifice that we need. If you're familiar with Hebrews, you know that 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 actual argument is coming in chapter 10. In chapter 10, he's going to say this, verses 3 and 4, but in those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you have an ineffective priesthood under the Levitical law, making an ineffective sacrifice that really, as the, he says here in chapter 10, really just kind of inflames a person's recognition of their need for sacrifice as they see that over and over again. Imagine being an Israelite, a Jewish person, coming to the Day of Atonement, and now you're advanced in years, and this is your, your, your 60th time to see this, your 70th time to see this, and every year, year after year, there's a need for a fresh atonement for sin. A constant reminder, we, we, we're unworthy. We don't measure up. And yet Jesus does something that is unimaginable, something that, that could not have been conceived by those other high priests that they, they could never do themselves. Jesus offers himself as the offering. Having obtained perfection by his perfect life, he then offered that life, his own life, himself as a human sacrifice, one who was an image bearer. He offered himself in our place. Now I know if you've been in church any length of time, and even if you haven't, this is not likely a new concept. Jesus offering himself for us. But I really want us all to just step back and do our level best to try to pretend that this is new information. Just let it hit you anew 
Jesus offered himself. Think of, it, think of yourself again as a Jewish person having lived under the Old Testament law and all you've ever seen are these animal sacrifices over and over and over again and then you hear this news, the Messiah has come and he's offered a better sacrifice. He didn't offer a lamb. He didn't offer a bull. He offered himself. He died for us. This is shocking. He died once for all when he offered up himself. He paid for it all. Let it wash over you again who this is. This is the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who created the world and all it contains, the one who sustains the world every moment of every day, the one who did all of those things, humbled himself and willingly took on humanity and then offered that humanity after living a real life for over 30 years without a single sin, he offered that life while being the one who had access to and authority over all the armies of heaven, all the angelic hosts. He says, I could call 10,000 angels, don't you know? If I didn't want this to happen, if I wasn't really offering myself, there's no one who would touch me. That one offered himself as the sacrifice. This is supposed to grab us by the shirt and remind us of the goodness of the gospel that Jesus Christ gave himself in the most unthinkable way, dying on a Roman cross, a, a, a form of execution reserved for the worst of the worst, meant to not only physically torture a person, but to shame that person. He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that for you, Christian. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that what the author is describing here is the heart of what we call the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is the fact that you and I are sinners, that we desperately need God's forgiveness but can't earn it on our own. We can't be good enough to represent ourselves before God. And yet God in his grace and mercy sent his own precious son to do the unthinkable, to live in your place, to die as a sacrifice, himself dying as a sacrifice, to pay for your sins and then to rise again from the grave. The Bible says if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, not in what you can do, but in what he has done, the Bible says you will be saved. That is saved from God's wrath over your sin so that God can treat you as a child of his because his own son died in your place. The reason that he didn't have to make multiple sacrifices is because he offered the right sacrifice one time he offered himself. If you're a Christian here this morning, no matter how many years God gives you on this planet, never get over that. Never get over that. Jesus' sacrifice is superior because he is the sacrifice. So he's superior in character, he's superior in position, 
He's superior in his sacrifice, and now the author rounds all of this up with one final closing argument in verse 28. He comes back to tie a bow on this exposition of Psalm 110, verse 4. We'll call this the closing argument. What we have here are three rapid-fire, succinct comparisons. And they're comparisons that sum up what he's already said. So we won't have to dive into them deeply because we've already seen them. But he sums up his argument just to say, I told you, he really is superior. There really is no question. Let's look at verse 28 again. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Why is it that the author has seen fit to spend so much time here on this issue? Well, we, we see it here in these three comparisons. First of all, he's going to compare the law and the oath. The law versus the oath. We've seen this again, but really what we're talking about is the, the foundation of the legitimacy of each type of priesthood. The Levitical priests found their legitimacy, a real legitimacy established in the Mosaic law. He introduces in verse 28, the law, for the law appoints. They were appointed by law. And again, they had a real priesthood. It was legitimate. God said this was to happen, but the, thing, the difference is God never promised it would last forever. That's the big difference. Let me read our key text one more time, Psalm 110, verse 4. This is what all of this has been about. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This priesthood of Christ was to be forever. And it came on the basis of an oath. The Lord has sworn. So the legitimacy of Christ's priesthood supersedes the legitimacy of the Levitical priesthood, not because the Levites didn't have a real legitimacy, but because theirs was never promised to be a lasting legitimacy. Christ was, received the oath that God swore, you will be a priest forever. So he's superior in the fact that his legitimacy comes from an oath. There's a second comparison here, and that is men versus the son, the men versus the son. Look back at verse 28, for the law appoints men, and then halfway through the verse, but the oath appoints a son. The law appoints men, the oath appoints a son. Now, if you were here all the way back in chapter one, when all of this started in Hebrews, you remember in the opening verses of the book, the author presents Jesus to us as the divine son, the majestic son of God. All of that, all of those truths that we unearthed about Jesus as God's son come into this mention. When he says the difference is the law appointed men, the oath appointed the son, it's intended to to stir up again all those thoughts about who the son is. So let's just read the verses back in chapter 1, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 to learn again about this one, the Son. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. 
Now listen to the descriptions he gives of this son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The law appoints mere men, but the oath appoints a son. And though Jesus was a man, he was never merely a man, as this text makes clear. Jesus is the eternal, only begotten Son of the, uh, of the Father. Never was there a time in which he was not. He never came into existence because he is divine himself. It says that, that he is the radiance of the glory of the Father. We see the glory of God in the Son. And why is that? It's because he's an exact representation of his nature. That is, the Father and Son share the same essence, the same substance. They are one, and they have been forever. Also, of course, with the Spirit. It's this one, the Son, that the oath appoints. And so, obviously, superior. The law appoints men, the oath, the Son. That leads to a third and final comparison here in verse 28. The weak versus the perfect the weak versus the perfect. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Made perfect forever. So the law not only appoints mere men, but these mere men, because they're mere men, are inherently weak. And we've talked about this, that weakness deals with their imperfection. They were imperfect and they could not provide the protection or perfection that we needed. But the superiority of Christ is in the fact that he is perfect, not just then, not even just now, but it says forever, made perfect forever. Now again, don't be thrown off by the fact that that verb is in the passive voice, made perfect forever. He's just talking about the incarnation, that Jesus became a real man and lived a real life. He earned perfection in his humanity in that sense because he really lived it out. But he's never been anything but perfect. That verb also is in the perfect tense. We've talked about the perfect tense before, but it's significant. It's a, a description of an action that took place in the past one time, but then the ramifications of that action go on forever. That's the idea here. Jesus is made perfect forever. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he will remain in his glorious perfection unabated forever and ever and ever. The implication then is that if he remains there forever and he remains perfect forever, then he will intercede for us perfectly forever. His ministry will go on in perfection. And so there you have it. Hebrews chapter 7, the capstone of this larger argument. And it's almost as if the author now steps back after making these final comparisons just to say, this is undeniably true. No matter what angle you look at it from, 
There's no conclusion to draw except this. Jesus Christ is the superior high priest. There's none like him. There never has been. There never will be. It also means all of those implications are true. That with his coming, a new covenant would come as well. A covenant of redemption by grace through his sacrifice. It means that our salvation is secure because he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he lives and intercedes forever and ever and ever. This brings us back to a place that we've been now several times before when it comes to application. We have to ask ourselves the question again, if we have a high priest like this one, why would we ever be tempted to desire any other to represent us before God? If we have this high priest, why would we ever be tempted to look across at another? Because remember, that's the context. That In some way, for some reason, because of the persecution they were experiencing or whatever it is, these Jewish Christians have begun to look back at the Old Testament law and their life under that covenant with longing eyes as if that was somehow has something to offer. It's not much different than the Galatians. You remember Paul says, who, who has bewitched you, Galatians? Have you, having started by grace, are you going to go now and finish by works? That's the same spirit here in this. Having seen this glorious high priest who is the, the perfect one who represents you, why in the world would you ever go back to the law? Why in the world would you ever think that you ought to be the one to represent yourself? Why in the world would you look to some false god or some false religious system? Why would you look anywhere else? but the Lord Jesus Christ for representation. That brings up another question that we've had to consider throughout this passage. What earthly circumstance can shake our assurance of salvation when our salvation is secured by such a high priest? And what possibly could shake us if we really get a hold of the fact that we have this one representing us and holding us? When we truly understand these things, there's no temporal person, there's no temporal circumstance that can truly shake our faith. It brings us back to the passage we began with this morning as we opened with scripture reading, Romans 8, 33 to 39, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't miss that last statement, by the way. Our confidence that the love of the Father will persist for us is the fact that the love of the Father for us is rooted in his Son. Nothing will separate us from the love of the Father, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It ties perfectly with what we've been studying. 
These truths were given to the Jewish Christians initially to call them back from being tempted to think that the Old Covenant had something to offer. And it calls us not to be mesmerized by the temptation of sin or to be disillusioned by the weight of our circumstance. It's a call to take our eyes and put them again firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ and to leave them there and to do it over and over and over again. You know, I want us to understand that these truths don't just affect our eternity. They do. We, we have a sure hope of eternity because Christ has secured it. But these truths are intended to affect our every day. We work backwards from that sure hope of eternal life to our daily life and realize that this hope ought to, to, to strengthen me to run the race in such a way to win the prize. As I think on this hope, it gives me hope now, not just for then, but for today. That assurance works its way backwards from there to here. And so as we wrap this up, I just want to remind us of the two applications we had last week because they're still needed today, and then one final application we take from our verses today. As we really, and when I say application, I mean really of the whole argument from chapter 4 to chapter 7. It's come down to this. Number one, as I mentioned last week, rest in the Father's oath. Understand that the Father will not abandon his oath to the Son that he will serve in this role, which means he will not abandon you if you're held by that Son and interceded for by that Son. Number two, as I mentioned last week, rest in the son's intercession. The father has placed him there, and that won't change, and the son is interceding for us, and that won't change. He will never stop pleading his blood for you, Christian. He'll never stop applying what he accomplished to you. He will never cease to pray for you, for your sanctification, for your final glorification. He will never cease to pray that God will preserve you through the storms of life and through the temptations that come. And so when you look ahead and your circumstance seems uncertain, remember you have one interceding for you in the ear of the Father. When you wonder, am I going to make it? Am I really going to cross the finish line of faith? Do I have what it takes? Well, rest assured that in and of yourself, the answer is no. But in Christ, the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, he will hold us. And so we rest in his intercessory work. And then finally today, what we saw is that we also need to rest in the son's perfection. Rest in the son's perfection. I, I don't know if you caught it, but from verse 26 to 28, there is this thread that runs throughout those verses that continually highlight the perfection of Christ. He's per perfect in his character, holy, innocent, blameless. He's perfect in the sense that his perfection goes on unabated because he ministers in perfection at the Father's hand. He's been exalted to heaven. And then, of course, it closes by saying he's been made perfect forever. There's this constant emphasis on the perfection of Christ, And so it brings us back to this familiar place of application, which is in the battles of life, if we want to hold on and run the race in such a way to win, the key will always be 
to put your gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this not what Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 1 to 3? He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What the author of Hebrews has done for us is given us the gift of more heavenly things to set our minds on. When he says, set your mind on things above, set your mind on these things. Picture the exalted Christ standing at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Picture his perfection filling in all of the gaps of your imperfection so that God gives to you his righteousness and places your sin on him. Draw your mind to these things, Christian. When your circumstances are screaming at you to look inward at yourself or to look at a person who's hurt you or wronged you or to look at your circumstances, there's this resounding call in the scripture, turn your eyes again to Christ. Set your mind on things above and then your feet will walk through that temporal circumstance in a way that honors Christ. This is how we live the Christian life. We should all be eternally grateful that God has given us this argument of the priesthood of Christ because we will never run out of things to meditate on and to set our minds on when it comes to heavenly things. The eternal assurance of our faith surely rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us again so much to dwell on, so much to be overcome by as we're overwhelmed at who you are and what you've accomplished and the way you've accomplished it and giving of yourself, the perfect sacrifice, truth that we know and love and yet that never let us go. They just keep reminding us of your goodness and your care. Help us not to forget these things when life is difficult and when we walk through the trials and temptations ahead. Help us to to set our mind on things above, to picture our Savior and strengthen us. As you intercede for us, strengthen us to walk faithfully for you in your glory. We ask it in your name. Amen.